Welcome, everyone. My name is Juline Jackson. I'm with Moms for America. Vivian is also with Moms for America. Uh, Viv lives in San Antonio, Texas. My husband and I, this is Al Jackson. We're, we're a team. We live in Chevy Chase, Maryland, just a stone throw from the White House, about 15, 20 minutes from the White House. We are feeling summer coming to an end, so we uh, grabbed a few kids and came to the beach. So we are in a <laughs> lovely hotel in Delaware, um, Bethany Beach, Delaware tonight. So uh, we're excited for our class. Thank you so much for joining us. Me and Vivian were just in Chicago this weekend. Uh, we're filming, I'm filming uh, the 12 introductory lessons for Moms for America. I'm film, filming each lesson and they will be about 30 to 40 minutes. You could gather your cottage meeting a group in your home, you play the 30 minute lesson, and then I, we give you about six discussion questions from the manual, and then you can have a discussion. And it, it's supposed to kind of raise your confidence level that yes, you can teach history, you can teach principles of freedom and the constitution. And, and um, I recorded the first four lessons and uh, and so we were coming home on Sunday and the, the airports were packed, flights were canceled. Mine was two hours late, Vivian's was uh, canceled. Our boy tried to fly the day after and his flight was canceled. And, and we initially thought, what is going on here? Vivian's friend did a little research and she said, oh, pilots that are having the vaccine mandated are not showing up. So it's an interesting time in our country. And I've noticed that there's been no, um, uh, nothing in the news talking about uh, a problem traveling right now. But if you're in the airports, you're realizing people are standing up and they're pushing back uh, against some of these restrictions that the government is putting on us. And um, it does feel, boy, it does feel, doesn't it, Paige, like just a topsy-turvy time in the history of the world as we just uh, have witnessed that 7.2 earthquake. I think they're up to 2,000 uh, casualties in Haiti. And then we're seeing the Afghanistan government just hobbled and the Taliban taking over those shocking sites on TV now and school is starting and oh Vivian just came from her or uh, was participated in her school board tonight and I think she said the line wrapped around the building of parents trying to get in and, and make comments and mad as hops about some of these restrictions that are being put on uh, the children and um, I, I know a teacher uh, in one of our children's former schools just went off on the first day a tirade against President Trump, uh, uh, swearing, threatening the students, uh, talking about the LGBT community and, and, and um, saying if anyone said anything negative about that segment of the, the school that they would be in serious trouble and parents are, are dumb. And so guess what a boy did as that teacher was just kind of going off trying to be cool, but letting the kids know on the first day of school, what she stood for. He, Video, pulled, hopefully. he pulled out the phone and he filmed the entire tirade and that teacher today was let go. So you need to tell your children if they're in government school and teacher starts to say uh, indoctrinating things, pull their phones out and get the teachers 
on video because that teacher is no longer teaching in that school. And the first day was on Monday and today is Thursday. So as we continue to stand up and fight back and push back, we really are going to exact some change. And uh, certainly, uh, I don't know if any of you saw the interview with uh, George Stephanopoulos and President Biden yesterday, but he's not looking very strong, is he? And his judgment has certainly come into question uh, over the last week or so. And we think of that, what, 3.5 trending, uh, um, trillion, 3.5 trillion spending bill passed last week. And it just kind of feels like an unsettling, troubling time in the world. And we're going to be keeping with this theme tonight as we teach about the last attack. Remember, Seminar 3 is all about how we become unhinged, how we've gotten into this predicament in our country. Our first seminar was all about miracles, God's hand in the establishing of miracles. I love to talk about miracles and teach miracles to our children and to mamas and fathers because, uh, look, with God, we can scale mountains. We can move mountains. And I know it feels like we've got some mountains right now um, that are, uh, you know, effectively really impacting our country. But with God, God is a miracle back then, and he is God of miracles today. And we can overcome the mountains in this country right now with God. Seminar one certainly reminds us of that. Seminar two, we talked about the Constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. Uh, living under those precepts uh, for the first hundred years, we went from only having 6% of the world's population to producing over 50% of the world's wealth. Uh, with these constitutional principles and free markets. And this is what we have to get back to. And so we have to know, we have to understand what our founder, founding fathers gave us. And we also have to know about some of the uninspired amendments that came after they, they did and how they have, how it's impacted what they gave us. And so the last three weeks going on our fourth week now, we have been talking about the attacks on America, the attacks on school schools with godless reformers, Horace Mann, John Dewey, the attacks on the moral fiber of our country. The courts uh, in the 1900s began to pull uh, Bible reading and prayer and God out of the schools. And that's certainly our scores have not gone up since we've done that. They've gone down. And today we're going to talk about the attacks on America's role in the world. Now there are 21 pages in this section, so we can't possibly cover all of it. We're gonna try and cover the highlights. Please, if I could really encourage you to go back and read these 21 pages over the next 48 hours, and it really will help lock in what we're going to discuss and learn tonight. So, um, by the way, if you don't have your seminar four book, now would be the time to go and uh, order that. I hope I actually I hope you've ordered it by now because we'll we will start into seminar four, which is hallelujah, my favorite, because it talks about solutions of healing America starting next week. Okay, so seminar three, section four tonight, America's manifest destiny, section one. When the American founding fathers established this new nation, they sensed that what they were doing was much greater than just setting up a new government. They felt that they were actually fulfilling their God-given stewardship, which they had been called to do. And they called it their manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race. And this is principle 28 of the 28 principles in the 5,000-year leap. 
when I tell you that's a principle, it's a whole chapter that just kind of breaks down what this manifest destiny they felt that they had uh, 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 being citizens of this country. So I really recommend reading these chapters. They're so wonderful. They had high hopes, our founders did, that by creating this system of government, they could become a model for all the other countries and governments of the world. They felt that they were destined to be an example and they placed this placed upon them as the American people, the responsibility of being a vanguard nation for the moral and political emancipation of all mankind. They felt John Adams said, I always consider the settlement of America with reverence and wonder as the opening of a grand scene and design by Providence for the illumination of the ignorant and the emancipation of the slavish part of all mankind over the earth. In the same spirit, James Madison said, happily for America, happily for the entire human race, the founders pursued a noble and new course. And Thomas Jefferson in a letter to his friend said, a just and solid Republican government maintained here will be a standing monument and example for the aim and imitation of the people of other countries our revolution and its consequences will ameliorate, that means to improve, the condition of man over a great portion of the globe. So they knew that what was being done here had been really struck off by the hand of God. And they knew that was that scripture in Luke where much is given, much is required. And God was going to expect much from this country of, of freedom and liberty. John Jay, who would go on to become um, the first chief justice for the Supreme Court, he started the Bible Society. He said the American people had literally thrust into an amazing accumulation of fortunate circumstances and that he said the whole generation at this time had a feeling of obligation and a sense of mission which they felt compelled to fulfill as pioneers on the frontiers of political science and prosperity economics. And this is why they called it, they, they had a manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race. Even though the founders wanted their American experience duplicated through various parts of the world, they didn't want it impl implemented through force or uh, in a dictatorial manner. They didn't want to necessarily control the world. Now, look, they knew in order to maintain this republic that they gave us, we needed to stay morally strong and virtuous, and we needed to elect these kind of leaders. And so they wanted us to lead by example. They wanted religion and morality to be taught in schools along with knowledge. They didn't want to conquer or amass more territory or terrorized by war. Typically that had been the case throughout history as countries and nations become more powerful. That's what they wanna do. They wanna grow their empire. They didn't, they didn't wanna do that. They wanted to be a good example for the world, but they didn't wanna uh, spread their message of freedom and liberty by force. And therefore, they often refer to this manifest destiny as being a city on a hill, a light to the world uh, from the Bible, Matthew 5, um, 14 through 16. And in fact, Ronald Reagan, when he was governor in California in 1974, 
he gave a speech with this theme as well, being a light on the hill. And, and he uh, talked about John Withrop, who was the um, governor of that providence of Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. And even Withrop, as he was on a boat, the Arabella, and he looked at the coast of Massachusetts and he said, we will be as a city hill all eyes of all the people will be upon us and reagan used that theme he said we cannot escape our destiny nor should we try to and this was a theme that he used when he would run for president six years later and win in 1980 he said we are indeed and we are today the last best hope of man on earth so al i'm going to turn it over oh, wow. to you okay and that was quick. Okay, section two, the founders desire to coordinate with other nations, but not to consolidate power. So the idea of the United Nations or NATO would not have been supported by the founders, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But so from the very beginning, the founders knew that to meddle in the affairs of other nations was a dangerous thing to do, particularly for an independent country. Basically, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, we'll trade together, we'll get along. Hopefully, as Julian indicated, we'll be a good enough example to you all that you might want to adopt some of the things that we're doing. Because at that time, you know, 100 years after the Constitution, 6% of the population was American. However, we were creating over 50% of the wealth. And those kind of attributes, other countries wanted to emulate. So the founders wanted us to coordinate with other nations, but not to consolidate power with them. In fact, Thomas Jefferson said, quote, commerce with all nations, alliance with none, which should be our motto. And he went on to say, determine as we are to avoid, if possible, wasting the energies of our people and war and destruction. We shall avoid implicating ourselves with the powers of other nations. And here's the most interesting thing of that statement, in my opinion, even in support of principles, which we mean to pursue. In, in other words, we're not to impose our values on other people. And what Jefferson went on to say that, also say was they have so many other interests different from ours that we must avoid being entangled in them. So you look at what's going on in the world, what we've seen transpire, particularly as it relates to the world's resources, oil, precious metals. We've involved ourselves in wars where we're trying to stop communism from spreading. We've had individuals who've been sympathetic to communism and socialism infiltrate our governments. And if you read The Naked Communist, which we'll talk about a little bit later here, The Naked Communist, that was written, copyrighted 1957. 1957, you'll read about stories where we actually got involved in helping Fidel Castro come to power. In fact, our government, some people in our government call Fidel Castro the next George Washington, <laughs> if you can believe that. We helped the Soviet Union get started after World War II. We got involved in Iran. We got rid of the Shah. And then the Ayatollah came in and took over after the Shah. Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood, Mubarak, after 50 years of being in power, we helped remove him. And look what's come in his place. 
And then you've got the, the war in Afghanistan, which is an absolute mess. You've got Vietnam and South Korea. There's example after example of what the founders warned against us doing. And so the founders really adopted this notion of separatism, not isolationism, but separatism. The latter term being an isolationist means that we are secluded from other nations as though the United States were to be detached, somehow isolated from other nations. That's not what the founders intended. In fact, the founders was just the opposite. They desired for us to cultivate wholesome relationships with all nations, but they just wanted to remain aloof from sectional quarrels and get involved in international pursuits. George Washington, in his farewell address, gave us some really good nuggets. In fact, George Washington's farewell address after his second term was actually part of the curriculum in the classroom where the students would actually read that. Because if you remember back to seminar one, George Washington actually saw a vision of America and he needed to at that time because he was in much despair because he was in Valley Forge and the Lord knew that he needed some strengthening. So George Washington was able to see in the future and see what America would involve themselves with. And so in his second farewell address, which I would encourage each of you all to read, it's not very long, but it's just full of such good nuggets. He admonishes us to avoid foreign entanglements. And secondly, he also avoided us, he, he warned us against a two-party system because he knew that that was going to wreak havoc. So Washington additionally warned that giving a more favored status to particular nations could open up to the United States to strong foreign influences which could subvert the security or best interests of the United States. And in our manual it says, in fact, American officials seeking to accommodate friendly allies could inadvertently compromise American interests. And I highlighted some of those before, but we're seeing that today. And, and those American officials are sympathetic to socialism and communism. They're, for some reason, people are just romanticized with those two notions, wanting to level things out, wanting to even the playing field, and not recognizing that beyond our own individualism, our own ability to rely on God for ourselves and and then what God encourages us to do is go around and to help others. But it's okay to be an individual. Nowadays, we, we label individualism as being selfish. Nothing could be further from the truth. George Washington went on to say that temporary alliances may be justified for extraordinary emergencies. But other than that, quote, harmony, liberal intercourse with all nations are recommended by policy, humanity, and interest. In other words, no nation building. Afghanistan is another example of how that does not work. So two, decade, two decades in Afghanistan, $2 trillion spent. That's $300 million a day that have been spent in Afghanistan. And we were there for 20 years and the Taliban came in and in 30 minutes took over the country. It's unbelievable. So Jefferson reiterated these same basic principles in a letter to James Monroe that was dated October 24th, 1823. 
And he talked about our first and fundamental maxim should be never to entangle ourselves in the broils of Europe. However, we don't want Europe meddling in our part of the world as well. And this translated into the Monroe Doctrine, as James Monroe took that seriously. And on December 2nd, 1823, President Monroe said that further efforts by European governments to colonize land or interfere with states in the Americas would be viewed as an act of aggression requiring U.S. intervention but also said that the United States would not interfere with existing European colonies. So if they're already there, that's fine. But if you want to come into the Western Hemisphere and colonize and mess with other countries, you're also messing with us. So as I indicated before, so section three, America makes a radical shift. So going back to what we said originally, 6% of the world's wealth, 6% of the world's population, but 50% of the world's wealth, America became pretty, pretty powerful, pretty powerful, both politically and economically. So we began to get involved in wars of intervention, foreign aid, and the defense of democratic nations against this massive, rapidly expanding dictatorships propelled the United States into a number of wars, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, the Gulf War, I mean, the list goes on and on. So what you're finding here is in the early 1900s, you've got the ideas of Karl Marx, who came around and died in actually 1888. So he's in the mid 1800s. His ideas are starting to have an influence globally, even though he died broke and and by himself, this idea of socialism and communism became very popular. And so there was this new leadership in America that came to power during that time, and their desire was to abandon constitutional principles of the original founding fathers and move us into the realm of what we call democratic socialism, democratic socialism where the government or few people control the means of production and direct the economy and private property of the people, but with the consent of the people. So every two years, we pool our ignorance as American citizens and we go vote for democratic socialism. Democratic socialism, that's kind of where we are today. So this new group of leaders became known as the master planners. The master planners. And they wanted to set up what what we've now become pretty aware of, this new world order. So there's about 100 men from the top inner circle who represented four major dimensions of power. Number one, the international banking dynasties. Out of that came the Federal Reserve. Corporations involved in vast international enterprises, so these global companies. Three, the American tax-exempt foundations, which came to be around 1913, before the 16th Amendment was passed. And then fourthly, the establishment of representatives who have gained high offices in government, especially the United States government. There's an interesting book. I mean, this, this might go along with 
Vivian's Robert rules in terms of boring, <laughs> but it's actually not boring because it's it's tragedy and hope. A lot of what went into seminar three comes from this book. It's kind of thick. I think I've read like maybe three pages in it so far, but anyway, you, if, if you're bored, you might want to read that. The Naked Capitalist is another good book. Jolene, do you want to do a commercial for that oh, one? Uh, this just kind of gives a review of tragedy and hope, and it's a lot thinner. And it's truth. <laughs> you can trust what you're reading. Quigley, who wrote that book, um, actually, he is a member of some of these secret societies. And he is a professor at Georgetown. And he, Bill, Cl Bill Clinton took classes from him at Georgetown and greatly influenced Clinton um, because he was known for writing about these global conspiracies. Hand me that one book, the red book. Yeah. And then this 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 is actually a must for your library, The Naked Communists. In fact, Ben Carson refers to this book a lot. This is the playbook for the communists and socialists. And we read a little bit from this. As you can see, that there's an outline of my body on there. So you need to add, I would encourage you to add that to your to your I Love America library. Okay, so what motivated these master planners, these elite? It's so interesting. These elite and these master planners want to control the means of production. They want to direct the economy. They want to direct everything or everyone below them, but they don't want anybody above them telling them what to do. And, and we see that today. And, and they want to concentrate power. So these individuals have already made their money now they want to control what everybody else gets. And you see that today with the folks in Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, Amazon. Those, com those companies are really, they're, they're running the country right now at this point. So like I indicated before, this romanticism with the ideas of socialism. So you've got Andrew, Andrew Carnegie. These are great capitalists. They, these are the men that benefited from the system and now want to change it. So you've got Andrew Carnegie, and what was he known for? He was a giant in the steel industry. Andrew Carnegie also established libraries. He would build libraries in, in a number of communities across the country. Snap his fingers, he would build these libraries. J.P. Morgan, he was a big man in the railroad industry. And then you've got John D. Rockefeller, who was, if you remember, Standard Oil. He was one of the big oil tycoons. And these wealthy and successful American capitalists began embracing the principles of democratic socialism. And it appealed to these men because of the concentration of power. They wanted to consolidate power. They thought that it offered them some distinct advantages. Number one, they could acquire both American political parties so it would be possible to gain control of the policies of the United States government. Two, they could use the government to squash competition. More regulations means more barriers to entry. Number three, we know that these men would also like to acquire control over the nation's money and credit system. We talked about this last week with the bankers, where they want to take us off the gold standard and, and create more lending low interest rates to entice people not to use their own money to expand, but to borrow this easy money from the banks. In order to do that, take us off the gold standard. 
and then fourth, increased taxation and expanded government spending that could be de directed in the ways that would greatly enrich their own enterprises, tax rebates, tax refunds, favorable tax system for their industries. The creature of Jekyll Island talks about how these master planners gathered together in 1910 on an island off of Georgia to talk about establishing the Federal Reserve. Reserve. That's right. We talked about in, in that in depth last, last week. We mentioned also the 1952 Reese Report that uh, Dr. Cleon Skousen and Glenn Kember got their hands on in 1978. And we found out from there that they would spend hundreds of millions of dollars through tax-exempt foundations to provide gifts and grants to the educational institutions. We talked about that at dinner today. We're really seeing the fruits of Horace Mann and John Dewey because they planted the seeds of this humanist, communist, socialist movement, and they did it with education. They were very brilliant at how they did this. If they could change the minds of our kids, as Abraham Lincoln said, the philosophy of the classroom in one generation is the philosophy of government in the next. And we're seeing that today. These wealthy leaders then invested heavily and heavily in certain political candidates to promote this socialist idea. They took control over the media, the newspapers, and their most loyal employees were pressed forward to accept top level government offices. So the, their loyal employees, so our government was infiltrated at the highest levels with socialist sympathizers. And then you've got 1913. 1913 was a, I'm not putting you to sleep. No, out. no, you're not, baby. Okay. It's sun and the beach. All right. So 1913 <laughs> was a very bad year. You've got the creation of the Federal Reserve. You've got the passage of the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment, all under the watchful eye of Woodrow Wilson who happened to be a Democrat at the time. And actually, well, that's another story for another day, but uh, he was able to revive the uh, Ku, Ku Klux Klan throughout the South. Woodrow Wilson is a bad dude. So from, that, from then on till now, every emergency has been used to increase taxes, strengthen federal regulations. I mean, we see that so clear today in this, this pandemic that we're going through where they are not letting a good crisis go to waste. And, and what happens is you see more and more of our freedoms being infringed upon. And these master planners began to believe that the social and economic chaos that war would bring would, would bring change faster. So if they could get us involved in wars, and it started with World War I. So we've got Charles Lindbergh. He's highlighted in our manual today. Congressman Charles Lindbergh, his son was the one that flew across the Atlantic. He warned us and, and wrote about our involvement in World War I. In fact, and who was president during that time? Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson from 1913. He even got reelected, 1913 to 1921. I wonder who ran against him. Must have been Bob Dole or... John is, you know, somebody not a very good candidate. Anyway, so we talk about getting us involved in World War I. Please study that at your leisure. We've got the planned, quote unquote, planned depression of 1921, where 5 million people lost their jobs. And if you go back to what we talked about with the Federal Reserve, they create booms 
and then also create bus. A boom occurs when they lower interest rate and entice lending. People go get that quick money, lending, lending, borrow, 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 borrow. And then they raise interest rates and boom, the notes become due. And that's when they foreclose, booms and busts. And it's been noted throughout our history. So then you've got 1939 comes along, World War II. We're embroiled in World War II. Actually, Julian, could you talk about that? There was a trade embargo that was put on Japan by Franklin Delano Roosevelt that encouraged them to bomb Pearl Harbor. Right, and right. There's an article here by J. Reuben Clark, who was the undersecretary of state and ambassador to Mexico. And he talks about in 1939, he writes this article about not getting involved in World War II. And actually, Congress did not support getting involved in World War II at that time. But Theodore, uh, not Theodore, but um, Franklin Roosevelt wanted to, but it was Congress who had to declare war. And so, you know, this is an example of meddling behind the scenes. Now, of course, you know, Pearl Harbor, we were bombed in 1941. So, oh yeah, okay, now we got to get involved in war. But as I studied it, what we had done earlier was we began to meddle in the affairs of China and Japan. We put a trade embargo on Japan, which began to decimate their economy. So I think they probably felt like that was an act of aggression and they were retaliating by bombing Pearl Harbor. And so, you know, sometimes we we don't always understand some of the behind the scenes wrangling uh, in order to justify us to get involved uh, in some of these events. And of course, one of the moms yesterday said, well, I'm glad we got involved with World War II because of Hitler, you know, and, and the monstrosity of the Holocaust. So, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe we needed to at that at some point, but, you know, at this time, we didn't know what Hitler was doing, but the FDR needed a reason uh, to sway the American public to agree to, you know, persuade Congress to declare war. And so they put that trade embargo on Japan, which then they bombed us and then gave us the green light to now get involved. Right. Okay. So I'm going to turn the time back over to you. But before I do, 1950, the Korean War, which this is interesting and it's highlighted in our book. 1950, our Secretary of State openly announced that if Taiwan or South Korea were attacked, the United States would not, I repeat, would not defend them. Six months later, Korea was attacked and President Truman overruled his Secretary of State in order and ordered General MacArthur into Korea. However, this war was not conducted by the Department of Defense, but it was conducted by the Department of the State of the State Department, the State Department, and was considered one of the worst managed wars in the history of the United States until we got to Vietnam. And that was throughout the 60s. Okay, Jeline, I'm going to turn the time back over to you to go over some of these nefarious organizations. Yeah, and, and just real quick, you know, I had to remind myself, why, why do we get involved with Afghanistan? And why is it crumbling after us being there 20 years? And, and it came at 9-11 in 2001. Um, President George W. Bush got us involved in the Afghanistan war because we believe that there were Al-Qaeda training cells that were being harbored in Afghanistan. In fact, we thought that bin Laden was in Afghanistan and, and ultimately 
he would be killed in Pakistan under the Obama administration. But we invaded uh, Afghanistan and we replaced their government. We pulled the Taliban out. We kicked it, kicked out them out. We put in a new government and tried to begin to do nation building and teach them to want to learn to live under freedom. And, and like Al said, we spent $2 trillion over the course of 20 years. I had a brother who served in Afghanistan for seven years, training their police officers. He was a, a retired police man. So he went over there for seven years, training their police uh, uh, force. And he said, his observation was that people just weren't ready. I mean, they for centuries had lived under ruler's, ruler's law. law. And they weren't going to change overnight, not even in a decade, maybe not even in two decades, but we continued to stay there. You know, it's one thing to, to punish a government for harboring terrorists, initially why we got involved, but it was another thing to stay there for 20 years and try and tell them how their government should be run. And it really, that doesn't typically work. And in fact, it sometimes causes greater resentment. And certainly we lost heart in America, how expensive it was. And we lost the will and, and we, you know, they began to lose the support of American citizens to have such an influence over in a country like that. And um, so anyways, okay. So in order for these master planners, we're on section five, in order for these master planners to begin to implement their programs to the greatest extent, they set up about 30 organizations, both nationally and internationally, and they would use them to be carriers and promoters of their message. And so it's interesting to know that, that these master planners really have captured both um, the top leadership of both of our national political parties over the last half century They've dominated the entire uh, policies or dominated policies of the White House, of the State Department. They've gotten control of the media, a national education, a national council of churches. So as we take a closer look at the organizations that the master planners organize, it will give you kind of an insight into their ideas and arrangements um, for America's future. So let's look at uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, we talked about how these master planners met in uh, 1910 off of Jekyll Island in Georgia to talk about the formation of the Federal Reserve. They actually, a year earlier in 1909, set up a secret society. Do you see that little diagram there in our workbook? Uh, set up by Cecil Rhodes in conjunction with Rothschild, uh, J.P. Morgan, Carnegie, uh, Rockefeller. They were all involved in directing this secret roundtable group. This secret group then set up many, uh, several fronts for the purposes of carrying out their con conspiratorial fronts. And uh, the one in the United States became known as the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, and it certainly exists today. And in that tragedy and hope quickly talks about how this came to be this uh, um, council for foreign council on foreign relations here in America. And the council on foreign relations is not the secret inner circle. You can tell as you look at that dia diorama, but it's kind of the front. Its front activities are kept mysterious as they are powerful. So there's not a lot of publicity around the CFR. Um, and if you like Google it, you'll 
likely find practically nothing on it or just very little. But um, anyways, the CFR is an American nonprofit, nonpartisan organization specializing in U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. It was it was founded in 1921 in New York City, and it was going to be another promotional arm for this new world order with, uh, within this secret society, and they would push out ideas for their own purposes. Now, today, there's about 5,000 members, and they are high government officials, they are scholars, they are presidents of universities, they're journalists, they're lawyers, they're prominent businessmen, they're Hollywood stars. I mean, if you were look at some of the members today, Stacey Abrams, the, the woman who ran for governor in Georgia, is listed. Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State, Warden Beatty, uh, Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City, President Carter, President Clinton, Katie Couric, Angelie Jolie. So they span all, they're kind of leaders in their industries. And so uh, what is their strategy? Well, it's the creation of an international grouping of powers and the establishment of socialism as dreamed by Karl Marx. Isn't that interesting? And Mr. Quigley of Hope and uh, Tragedy uh, may be entirely correct in this charge that the CFR and the global establishment have gained such a hold on our elected process in the United States that no matter which political party gets into power, the winner is often beholden to these powers to a significant degree. And that is interesting that uh, nearly every secretary of state has been a member of the CFR and that includes both Democrats and Republicans. So you might say there's not a lot of daylight between the R's and D's nowadays. Now Trump, Donald Trump was a part of this oligarchy. It's called where power is in the hands of a few where only a few people are running the country. But what he did is he exposed them. And this is why they hated them so. And this is, uh, you know, they felt he was in their way to this new world order and they could not allow him to have another four years in office come hook or crook. They made sure that didn't happen. And so um, another secret society is known as the Trilateral Commission. And they make national and foreign policy. They're a non-governmental, non-partisan group. And uh, this discussion group was founded by David Rockefeller, a son of John D. Rockefeller in 1973 to foster uh, closer cooperation with um, Japan and Western Europe and the United States. And its members are among some of the most influential economic and political leaders in the world and its purposes again is to construct a new world order. Former members include Jimmy Carter, Jeffrey Epstein is uh, um, uh, related and, and mentioned as being a member of this group, Walter Mondale, Michael Bloomberg, again, Henry Kissinger and Andrea Mitchell, De uh, General Petraeus, uh, he was the general uh, in, during the Afghanistan war. So there was a man who was a member of the Trilateral Commission. His name is uh, here in our manual, uh, Brzezinski. And he actually wrote a book talking about this group and what their goals were. This book was um, published in 1970. 
entitled Between Two Ages. And he talks about their goals. Number one, to be a piecemeal gathering of nations into one world order. Now this Zabrinsky, um, also he taught at Columbia University and President Obama was um, in his classes and was influenced by him. And Zabrinsky, Brzezinski, I'm not saying his name right, would ultimately go on to campaign for Obama. And Brzezinski served under uh, Jimmy Carter in his administration as well. So in this book, he, he exposes, he talks about, they're kind of proud, just like Quigley. He's kind of proud of what these organizations are doing. It was the trilateral Trilateral Commission was supposed to be an international council to deal with political issues, to enforce peace, to handle education at all levels in an international body, to control the distribution of information in the hands of a few in this international council, to set up a body to control the production of goods, to control credit and finance at an international level, to call for greater American sacrifices. Boy, we're seeing that with COVID now. We're all asked to do things for the greater good collectively to wear things or to, you know, get shots and that kind of thing. Never was the emphasis on freedom, but only international in the trilateral um, commission here. Another uh, secret group, you've heard it before, it's largely funded by Carnegie, Rockefeller and Ford, founded in 1950, is the Aspen Institute. And its uh, members are leading members of Fortune 500, and they are based in D.C., but they do have a campus in Aspen, Colorado, and it's uh, open-minded dialogue. Uh, and once again, their most significant goal of the Aspen Institute is, is to set up this new world order and to um, replace the individual sovereignty and national constitutions, <laughs> nations of the world. And so, you know, history demonstrates that when any group acquires a fabulous amount of money and power, they cannot resist the temptation to remake the world. And that is what these people that belong to these secret organizations do. And so uh, another one is the Bilderberg meetings. And its members are comprised of about one-third politicians and two-thirds finance, industry, labor, educational and communication uh, leaders. So it's an extremely influential lobbying group with a hidden agenda of powerful elites moving the planet again to a new world order. Now, the Bilderberg Group was founded in 1954 in um, a, the Bilderberg Hotel in Netherlands, and they meet every year at various places in 1964, they met in Colonial Williamsburg, if you can believe that, and all their meetings are closed. Now, there's only about 150 in, invitees to this yearly meeting. So there's no reporters that sit in. Uh, and when the meeting is over, there's no handouts, no policy statements or, co or copies of their adopted resolutions that are given to the press. The conference members kind of go to their four parts of the world to carry out the adopted goals, but the world is really never given the slightest hint as to what they decided. Now, people have caught on to these groups. So, you know, for fear of thinking that there's something, you know, uh, evil is going on, they usually let people know, they give make a pretense of publicizing their meetings, uh, and they might even acknowledge some who have been 
um, invited well-known personalities. So it doesn't quite look as uh, conspiratorial or mysterious. Uh, in fact, did you know the last Bilderberg meeting was just uh, in June in the Sierra Pines Resort in California? They didn't have one last year, but the, the year before 2019, Switzerland. In 2017, they had the Bilderberg meeting like 20 minutes from our house at a Marriott in Chantilly, Virginia. We know the Marriotts. Will you ask him next time you see him why he's hosting Bilderberg meetings? <laughs> so anyways, and one last conference or one last secret group is the Pugwash group. And this is a group of uh, nuclear scientists that began to meet in 1954 in Pugwash, Nova Scotia. So they call it the Pugwash Conferences. It was attended by some of the most world uh, uh, no, some of the world's best known nuclear scientists in 1954. In fact, many will say that it's, it's these brains that were a part of inventing the internet. And they're the ones that came up with the technology uh, to launch the Sputnik. So it was a combination of American nuclear scientists and Russian and China, and they launched it from Russia, that, that first Russian satellite. And remember, uh, because of that, Americans thought we were falling behind and we allowed the government to get more involved in our school systems and teach a different kind of curriculum and pull founding fathers and God and constitution out and, and more uh, you know advanced curriculums because we thought we were getting behind in here. It was American nuclear uh, scientists that were behind the launching of that Sputnik. Also, Henry Kissinger was a part of this Pugwash group. He was the Secretary of State under um, Nixon. As I did a little research on him, I don't think he was a good guy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kissinger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he is Jewish, but he would go on to become excommunicated from uh, Judaism's highest rabbinical court in the United States. Now, that's not a good sign that he's a good dude if his own people are excommunicating him. And then uh, I'll have you read what the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace did. I mean, it's such a great story. Mr. Carnegie is like rags to riches, but ultimately his money was used for nefarious and bad purposes as uh, several of these other organizations are there. All these organizations are all internationally interlocked to that secret control group known as the Round Table. So Mr. Quigley, uh, Hope and Peace, Tragedy and Peace. Tragedy and Hope. <laughs> tragedy and Hope, there you go. He unintentionally in his book, uh, let it be known, you know, that, um, that these groups here had really utter contempt for people like you and me, Al, just good citizens, Amer ordinary Americans. Um, and they looked at us and treated us like we were helping puppets on an international chessboard where giants of economic and political powers were going to subject us and our country to wars and revolution and civil strife and confiscation and sub subversive indoctrination. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these groups are behind uh, Black Lives Matters and, you know, all the racial discord that we've experienced here lately and critical race theory and so forth. So I'll take it away uh, and let's talk about some of these um, executive right. agreements. So using crisis as an excuse, the presidents of the United States began to issue the secret executive agreements without the consent of Congress. 
They would go behind Congress and cut deals with other leaders of other foreign countries. And examples of this, it's in your book here at the Yalta Conference, what I would encourage you to read about that. And then the League of Nations Treaty, which eventually turned into the United Nations. But so after World War I in 1919, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson and other world leaders wanted to create a League of Nations organization. This idea through a treaty will through a treaty that Wilson was advocating for in the United States Senate died there. They did not go along with it. Eventually it came to be right after World War II, but that was the first attempt at creating this, this League of Nations. The treaty would require the United States to go to war without declaration by Congress, which is precisely what happened on the United Nations Treaty in the case of Korea, Vietnam, and Desert Storm in the 1990s. Two, it would commit the nation to the expenditure of funds which Congress might not wish to appropriate money going to the United Nations. And then thirdly, it would turn over to the balloting of nations the disposition of many of our most important constitutional affairs. In other words, the League of Nations, the United Nations agenda would overcome that of the United States. So it wouldn't be so much us looking out for our interests, but we would be part of this world organization and we would have to submit. And, and I think the interesting thing to note is here, we're working with people who don't have our values, who don't value freedom. And so of course they're gonna put us in positions that are counter to what our founders envisioned for us. So the United Nations Treaty began after World War II. There was such an intense anxiety, anxiety to quickly organize a world order for peace. So we had World War I, now we had World War II, a perfect opportunity to create the United Nations. And it went through the Senate, sailed through without study or analysis. And you know what we have today Okay, anything you want to add to this, Giulini, in this section before I turn it back over to you? Then we've got the creation of NATO, which is an interesting alliance where we have teamed up with a bunch of countries in Western Europe. And NATO was actually formed to counter the Soviet Union. And so now our military now becomes subject to this world organization, and that is counter to what the founders had envisioned. So that's an entangling alliance. Yeah. And this is something that Washington and Jefferson and James Monroe and others warned us against. It was almost as if they had a crystal ball because everything that they had indicated and highlighted really came to pass. And I think what we covered today, Julian, I think you're gonna conclude here, basically the fruit the fruit of what we talked about in the very beginning where those seeds were planted by Horace Mann, John Dewey, and others. And as Julian highlighted, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely when people, and it's always has to do with money and the desire to control everything below you, but nobody above you. And that includes God. So the United Nations and NATO were all organizations that were established through treaties. And that means two thirds of the Senate 
approved him, but these kind of organizations are the epitome of entangling alliances because these organizations lead to political alliances, which is just the opposite of principle 25. It's actually one of the principles in the 5,000 year leap commerce and friendship with all nations entangling alliances with none. So when you've got those 30 organizations and you just touched on a few of them, the trilateral, the Bilderberg, the Council of Foreign Relations, a lot of our elected officials are going to these conferences and of course they would vote for these treaties because that's how they've been indoctrinated and probably compromised along the way. Obviously, they weren't steeped in the wisdom of our founding fathers. And this is why we want to become uh, steeped in what our founders intended for this nation. And then we hold the, uh, you know, the feet of our politicians to the fire and we help vet them and we help teach them and we help put people in office that are going to advocate for what our founders intended, you know. And so it was once the great American dream to make as many people as possible part of that great middle class. And it was, you know, that middle class was recognized as the backbone of our society and an important segment uh, of our population in maintaining this progressive, self-governing, secure, freedom-loving people. But, you know, obviously, if you're trying to set up a virtual dictatorship like these master planners were trying to do, this group of freedom-loving, patriotic people of faith are going to be viewed as your enemy. And so this group, you and me and Al and people like us who love America, we're resisting uh, these types of, you know, infringements of our rights and being told what we can and cannot do. And, and we will continue to resist as long as we know that it's happening. And we show up each week because we're trying to learn. We just know something is not right with America. Something is not right with the government telling us what we can and cannot do. And everyone seems to just blindly be following and not pushing back. And so it's people like us, uh, the, uh, like us, like you all, that the master planners, you know, are trying to uh, discourage and marginalize and make us think that we don't know what we're doing. But that is why we have to continue to rise up and push back from this overreach of, of the government, these mandates on masks and vac vaccinations. Just the other night, two nights ago, we went to the mall and we live in Washington, D.C. and the surrounding areas and there are mask mandates everywhere. If you're indoors, you have to wear a mask. And we said, we're not going to wear a mask. We're going to make them tell us to put on the mask. We went at all over that mall. We went into like six stores. No one told us to put the mask on. We went into the food court. My girlfriend said she went into the grocery store yesterday, didn't wear a mask. Big uh, sign saying we have to wear a mask. She didn't. And she said, the only thing that someone said to me was at the end when I checked out, the cashier told me to have a nice day. And so I think we have to not just take it and, oh, they told us we have to do something, therefore we must do it. Al's wrote a letter to our daughter's school. Uh, she goes to a private school and he's like, I do not want my child wearing a mask this year, even though it was one of the only schools that was open. 
last year and she went in person, she had to wear a mask. And a headmaster actually called out uh, yesterday and said, I'm getting all kind of pushback from parents that don't want their kids to wear a mask. I'm going to do everything in my power to make that happen. And I just wrote a letter to a principal of a high school uh, that one of my kids went to. She went on this tirade the first day of school on Monday against Donald Trump and how stupid your parents are and, you know, advocating for the LGBT community. She was cursing. She was threatening students. Some kid had his phone on and filmed her all. So enough parents, after that, the, the video went viral, texted, wrote letters to the principal, and that teacher is no longer on staff tonight. So we have to continue to rise up and push back. You know, it's, it's important that we understand uh, how these attacks have taken place the last 125 years, attacks in our education, attacks on the moral fiber, attacks on our constitution, and attacks by these master planners whose motives were very self-serving, who did not love America, did not love our founding fathers or the constitution. So when we begin to understand how systematically they have unhinged our country and dismantled it, then we begin to know what we need to do to systematically repair and restore it. We're going to talk about how we can heal the Constitution, how we will cut off this big funding that came through the 16th Amendment, how we can repeal the 17th Amendment and restore those checks and balances and get those senators being the watchdog for the states, and how we can give power back to the people and decentralize Washington, D.C. If we were to do that, that would make it almost impossible for these master planners to try and, you know, uh, get their foothold in because now they'd have to go to 50 different states and 50 different state legislatures and that would just practically be impossible to do. So Seminar 4 is full of solutions of healing and hope and I can't wait for us to be able to learn and discuss some of these ideas for, for repair and restoration. You are going to be thrilled to know that we can peacefully restore the founder's dream for America as we educate ourselves and this is what we do we're doing as we show up each week, as we educate ourselves and begin to educate the people we love the most, our families, our neighbors, as we get begin to gather uh, together in cottage meetings of husbands and wives. You can, do, you can have husbands and wives cottage meetings. And then we begin to have local leaders into our home and, and talk to our cottage meeting and get 20, 25 people from the community. I promise you, you know, your uh, elected uh, officials or people that are running for office will want to come talk to you and you can help kind of uh, coach them up and send them off with a 5,000 year leap or a pocket constitution. And then it will begin to have, you know, I've always told the story as I began to learn these principles that you're learning in the Healing of America seminar, I, in my cottage meeting with moms, I began to come home and teach these stories and principles to my children and in our family devotional and Al got on board and he began to study and he ultimately a few years later ran for the state senate and he won and it was because of the things that mama was learning with the mamas in the cottage meeting coming home teaching our family sparking the heart of a good man and he did some, some real good uh, in the state of Utah for the time that he served in the state senate I know I know mamas and I often say it sometimes most of the time it will be the mothers waking up and then Al always hates it when I say this what do I say yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> gently putting the foot 
in the behind of your man to wake him up. And then you begin to move forward lockstep and you're a real force in your home and your community and even your state. And I even have crazy stories how our family got the attention of national TV and they came into our home and wanted to know about our family devotional and how we taught our children principles of freedom. And that's just, I'll tell that story in seminar number four, but um, we will leave you with that tonight. So don't get too depressed. Don't go, uh, you know, start eating chocolate bars in bed tonight because you think the country's going to hell in a handbag all these attacks god is a god of miracles he can move mountains if we have adequate faith in him he can move mountains for us and so anyways thank you so much we will see you next week